Hey everyone, we're taking the week off. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. This week we're re-releasing our episode on the only unsolved American skyjacking case in history, D.B. Cooper. In the meantime, you can head over to our Patreon for some bonus content, like our mini-sodes, including a recent update on the hashtag FreeBritney movement. We also added an all-new segment, The Wheel, where we spin an actual game show wheel and discuss topics chosen by you. Thanks so much for listening, and keep it creepy. The late 1960s were a golden age of air travel. Spacious legroom, glamorous flight attendants, and delicious meals on every flight and a rash of violent hijackings. Some were politically motivated, while others were fueled by greed. The most famous and mysterious hijacker of all took control of a 727 with nothing more than a black briefcase, a handwritten note, and a pair of sunglasses. He got his money and his parachutes, then disappeared into the night, never to be heard from again. Did he die in the Washington wilderness, or did he manage to make an escape with his bag of cash? This week's episode is D.B. Cooper. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I feel like I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Go on. Do you have any interest in skydiving? Hail to the no. <laughs> okay. That's what I, that's what I was assuming. No. No. I also don't. I have friends that went and initially I said, yes, sign me up. But actually my old uh, employer was a pilot and we, he t- did flying lessons with some of the employees as kind of a fun job perk. And such a fun time to, you know, ride shotgun pretty much flying these planes and take the yoke and, you know, move, go up and down. But like a small little plane. It was a Beechcraft Bonanza. So it's a single engine, but uh, it has retractable gear. So, you know, you see like the little Cessna 172s where the gear doesn't go up or down and they have, yeah. you know, so it, it's bigger than that. And I think it seats like four people and mm-hmm. maybe one in the back. But even those I don't want to ride in. Yeah. And, and it, the only reason why I wrote it is because he was the most meticulous person just in his daily life. So I thought you felt safe. Yeah, I felt safe. And he had this whole checklist he made and, you know, do, doing the pre-flight. I f- it's so much work to even get the plane. You got to tow it yourself. You know, it's so much work to even get the plane turned on and you check the gas and you check the av gas. It's apparently different than jet fuel, you learn. And you, you know, check all these things. And I thought, okay, well, if you're that meticulous getting it out, but even flying at like 3,000 and 6,000 feet, you're too fucking high up. That's so high. How far are you when you jump out of a plane? That's a great question. I really, let me, may I check? Go for it. <laughs> Uh, so I have this, um, theory that Google just knows what you want. So I typed how high skydive <laughs> and it says 13,000 feet. Okay. Yeah. So I was so at 3,000. 3, so 10,000 more. And yeah, I just don't really, it's not that I, it scares me. It just doesn't interest me. It seems that I, here's the thing. I have a ton of respect for it. A, I think. 
the people that do it, you know, they would describe to you, you could get no other high, right? But sometimes, I, do, I don't know, our friend Rob went the other day and he's like, I've had more thrills with a cold shower in the morning. Oh, like, really? Just, well, I think, it, on a I think it's depending on where you go and stuff true. and maybe how high up you are. That's true. But I don't know. I don't I, know. She's never interested in I'm trying to do a new theory in life, which is let people enjoy things. And if you want to skydive, you go do that. Oh, yeah. I have no problem doesn't if people mean, want to skydive. And there's shit that I do that I'm sure people are like, I would never, ever do that. Like ride a motorcycle or perform on stage in front of people. Those things, some people would say I'd 100% would rather skydive than do either of those. So, I mean, I get it. I get the thrill. I personally would uh, no, I jumped off of a boat in Cabo and that was very tall. How tall? It, it wasn't. It wasn't tall, but it felt was it like just a, like a normal boat. No, it was like a yacht. It was like uh, t- uh, I'm not some fun jet setter. We split it between like 50 people. So it was quite economical, but it was about I mean, it was not the first. It was like th- like taller than your house. Yeah, probably. That's that's not like a shabby. One, about that's a one too shabby. Yeah, probably about as tall as a one. More than house. a high dive at a pool. The highest high dive, probably. It was pretty high up. Like, if you're watching Olympic diving. It was probably... The highest high dive they dive off of? That high up? It's, it was probably 50 feet up. I think those high dives are taller than that. Okay, so and I'm always, that. I'm always... Feel very nervous for them bouncing on the edge of those little diving boards. Well, I just I hooked myself over the edge, and that was there was not a diving board. It was just like if you want to go up and jump off the side. I would have done boat. that. I mean, it was fun. Yeah, it was one of well, those. Then maybe you'd have fun jumping I out of a plane. Do it, but then I did it. So that was my love of roller coasters was born out of that when I was a little kid. Well, I love my sister, but she said, are you going to be a big baby and not go on it? And I said, no, I'm going to go. Even though I was so scared, I probably was going to pee my pants. And it was so much fun, and I'm so glad I did it. Now I'm obsessed with roller coasters, and everywhere I go, I, I used try to, to love roller coasters, and now they make me super nauseous, oh, so I sick. can't go on them. Motion yeah. sick? Yeah, you know I puked all over myself in the <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> right. But all of them, all, I just get motion sick really easily now, so I can't really... Oh, do anything like that. Even driving in a car makes oh, really? me throw up a lot of times. Yeah. Well, someone that had no problem. Dude, this guy was bold. Diving right on out of this thing was uh, the guy we're talking about this week. D.B. Cooper. What do they say fortune favors the bold and you just. Man, the 60s were time. You just walked up. For a this lot of reasons. 1971. But the late 60s, early 70s, it was a damn free for all in the sky. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that didn't stop there i mean the they later passed legislation in like the 80s of like maybe you should show an identification before getting yeah on yeah anybody could some, just walk right into an airport and they'd say what was your day. name and you could just go you know bananas foster and they would go all right hop on board yeah you could smoke on planes that's crazy to I me would, i'd throw somebody out of a plane for that it's such a confined space although yeah. back then everyone, back then everyone smoked everyone people smoked. i mean did you watch mad men yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone, the doctors are smoking. Constantly. Everybody's smoking. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And this week we're talking about D.B. Cooper. This has been an interesting one to research. And we had quite a few su- requests for this one. Yes, so, this was uh, highly, highly sought after. So let's get into it. The afternoon before Thanksgiving, November 24th, 1971, a man walked up to the counter at the Portland, Oregon airport. He used cash and bought a $20 one-way ticket on a Northwest Orient Airlines plane bound for Seattle. He told the agent his name was Dan Cooper. The media would later mistakenly refer to him as D.B. Cooper, a name that would forever follow this mysterious man. It's fun when you just call things the wrong thing forever, and that becomes the name. You know, D.B. Cooper's never... No, that wasn't his name. No. 
<laughs> just ran but they were like, you know what? Uh, we like this better than Dan, and it's we're going to stick with it. They're like, Dan's kind of blah. DB's got a little panache Yeah, to DB it. could be anything. What does it stand for? Dick bag. <laughs> Dick bag Cooper. <laughs> Maybe that was his name, and he was like, this is my one chance to I'm not go it. by Dick bag and have to explain this to someone, <laughs> so I'm going to go by Dan. <laughs> I will say I saw somebody's name on the internet today it was you know in a work-ish context not really work-related but uh this person's last name was dick hut Mm, that's unfortunate and i don't know if you pronounced it dick it d was it d-i-c-k-h-u-t i would call that dick hut yeah wouldn't you i think if two words are together you say them you know if it's i would yeah surely they may be like it's dikahoot, <laughs> dikute, <laughs> but dikut just I'm. You you changed that. I'm not. I a, would. Oh, for sure. I'm not an adult, but I because I laughed at that just and I. Oh, I think it to like five. I think people. anyone adult child would laugh at that. <laughs> it's like someday I'll be emotionally mature enough not to be like. <laughs> I hope I'm never emotionally mature enough not to laugh at. I look dikut. forward to continued to just childishness and and in death after that. Well, Cooper appeared normal, dressed in a smart suit and carrying an attache case, ordinary for the times. Along with his suit, he wore a lightweight black raincoat, a dark clip-on tie from JCPenney, and a mother-of-pearl tie clip. He's a classy guy. I'd let him on an airplane. Yeah, I mean, first of all, we glossed over the fact that this ticket was $20. That's true. That's true. Which (laughs) at the time, it may have been like... $50 $50 I mean, of the sometimes time. on Southwest, you can get close to that. For a one-way to Portland, if you hit it right, you're, it's and like Portland $57. Seattle, Portland to Seattle is almost like Dallas to Austin, yeah. right? It's not super far, like Dallas to New Orleans. Well, he was described by witnesses as an average-looking businessman, standing about six feet high, weighing between 170 to 180 pounds. He was white, had brown eyes, and appeared to be in his 40s. Sort of average Joe for the time. Mm-hmm. Don Draper-looking. Please don't ever call Don Draper average in my presence again. <laughs> John Hamm. He's is so hot. Anything but average. He's beautiful. He is drop dead gorgeous. Work of art. His face. Also, he is not only is he extremely talented, extremely talented actor, he is very funny. Most people don't know about him, but he is an extremely funny person. He's on 30 Rock. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's the doctor. Yes. I made Paris watch that episode. So because uh, every time I said that he lived in a bubble, he would know what I was talking about. Oh, there you go. Well, Cooper was the last person to board Northwest Airlines flight number 305. Accounts vary as to which seat he took. Some say it was 18E, while others say 15C. Nevertheless, he took a seat near the back of the plane and ordered a bourbon and soda while the plane was waiting to take off. He paid the flight attendant and enjoyed his drink. Drinking and smoking and wearing a suit on a plane. That's the 60s, man, or 71. Shortly after takeoff, around 3 p.m., The man then slipped the flight attendant a piece of paper as he smoked a cigarette, a common practice at the time. No stranger to attempted pickups from lonely travelers, the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, took the slip of paper and tossed it in her pocket. As she was serving other passengers, the man stopped her and gently told her, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Florence was horrified, but the passenger asked her to sit beside him. When she did, he opened his attache case, revealing not the normal contents of papers and business documents, but instead what appeared to be a bomb. There were eight red cylinders, all connected by red-coated wires. Florence later said she also saw a battery, and by all accounts, 
She assumed this was an active bomb. Do you think you could recognize an, a bomb in an attache case? Like you, or a bomb anywhere? If someone opened a briefcase and showed this description of things to me, I would assume it was a bomb. It, I mean, I'm who am I to question it? I've never saying, made a bomb. I don't know. If someone says this is a bomb, I would believe them. I'm just saying you could really take apart... Sure. A alarm I, clock? I do not think this was an actual bomb. That was my question. I was going to say, you could crack open like an alarm clock and glue things to, you know, batteries yeah. and whatnot, and then it would look bombish. I, I think that's probably what he did. As a flight attendant in this situation, I'm not going to question him, though. I would assume. I would ass- Even if I think it's fake, Air- this man is clearly unhinged to be presenting this threatening. On, He's threatening in <laughs> on a flight. When Florence asked what he wanted, the passenger made it clear. $200,000 in... Negotiable American currency. About $1.2 million in today's money. He also specifically asked for all $20 bills. Cooper then demanded four parachutes and a fuel truck on the tarmac in Seattle, waiting to refuel the plane for the next leg of his planned trip. So he kind of... This was doesn't seem to be a... Uh, off the cuff, I think I'm going to take this plane over. He knew what he wanted, and he came with the bomb in hand. I think if you show up with a bomb on a plane, you've planned out some stuff. Something, You're a planner. You're a least. planner. <laughs> you put everything in the attache case. You took the time <laughs> yeah, you, to fill your case. You didn't just wake up that morning and say, you know what? I'm going to go to uh, Seattle. What am I going to do today? Yeah. Well, maybe hijack a plane. Let's I don't see. know. Let's just throw together some things I've got laying around the house. <laughs> Make a bomb. I think he had planned this out to a degree. Cooper sent Florence up to the cockpit to tell the pilots of his demands. Airline hijackings had spiked in the 1960s and 70s, so flight crews were not completely unprepared. According to Vox, between 1968 and 1972, more than 130 American airplanes were hijacked. At some points, there could be as many as one hijacking per week. So this is insane. (laughs) So many. Yeah. Cause, and if you think about it, air travel has become way more common now than it was back then. So that, that, there were become way safer too. Well, definitely. But there's just more people flying and more airlines and more planes sure. in the sky versus back then. And to think that that was such a high ratio of hijacked. There was a good chance if you were flying on a plane, six. if you were a business traveler and you had to travel, if you had to fly once a week for a month. Yeah. There's a good chance you're on a plane that gets hijacked. For sure. That's that's a, wild. Have you ever seen the out-of-towners with Jack Lemmon and Sandy Dennis? No, I don't Everybody, think so. Everybody, this is a public service announcement. They did a remake with Steve Martin and uh, Goldie Hawn, which was, I mean, not even close. The out-of-towners with Jack Lemmon and Sandy Dennis is one of the best comedy films of all times, like writing-wise, especially in Jack Lemmon's just such a, he's such Jack a Lemmon's great. serious actor and he's so serious about it, but it's about this Ohio businessman who's getting considered for a promotion in New York. So he and his wife are thinking they're going to move there. So he brings her along with his, to his final interview and everything that can go wrong could, goes wrong for them. You know, they're bumped from their flight. They don't have food for them. They're, they get stuck at the airport. They don't have a hotel, yada, yada. And so at the very end, they're finally, okay, we're like so excited. We're going to fly back home and then it gets hijacked and that's the bit for the time was that that was so common that it was like a joke in this movie which was made in the 19 uh, probably late 60s early 70s is there a hijacking on airplane oh i don't i haven't seen the whole oh, thing man, of airplane. talk about a great comedy film so good leslie nielsen he's amazing again oh, someone that's so serious that's why they cast him in that role God, he's so good i use that example in my improv classes all the time yeah you think about leslie nielsen can sell it that's the type of commitment you should play 
all your characters with no matter how absurd yes. because that's why it's funny that's why they cast him in that role they wanted a dramatic actor to be playing mm-hmm. this absurd character because mm-hmm. it would hit so much harder it's so, and or it like certainly K- did Carrie Elwes when he plays in Robin Hood Men and Tights yeah. he's very Shakespearean yeah. and theatrical well Brendan Corner author of The Skies Belong to Us A History of American Skyjackings I like that phrase by the way I like a portmanteau says that hijackings can be broken into three distinct eras. One, people wanting to go to Cuba. Two, people asking to be taken elsewhere, like Rome or Europe. And three, people demanding ransom money. So there was, and the Cuban Revolution was going on at the time, and so that was kind of ubiquitous. And I think that's what they say in the uh, out-of-towners movie. They said this plane's going to Cuba. Ah, classic. Well, this was clearly a case of the third. The passenger who called himself Dan Cooper was not shouting about going to Cuba or demanding a landing anywhere other than the plane's intended destination. He simply wanted cash and a way out. After Florence told the cockpit of the situation and returned to Mr. Cooper, she noticed he had put on dark wraparound sunglasses. The flight crew alerted authorities on the ground that the plane was now a victim of a hijacking. In response, the pilots were told to stay in the air while authorities were scrambled on the ground. That's pretty cool. You got this. You know what? That's adds a certain level of panache if you put sunglasses on. Yeah. I wonder at what point he realized he didn't have them on. He's like, fuck, I'm going to start this whole thing with my sunglasses on. Okay. (laughs) When she comes back, I'm going to have them on. And she's going to be like, whoa, he put on sunglasses. (laughs) He's like, I guess you could say this plane was skyjacked. Whips on the sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, and the Who just yes. plays. Who? I don't even know if that song no, had been written other- at that time. <laughs> for two hours, the plane circled the landscape about Seattle, allowing for emergency workers to congregate at the Seattle airport. In an interview with New York Magazine, flight attendant Tina Mucklow described Cooper during this time as normal and cool. He wasn't nervous. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. Well, at least he wasn't. Yeah. It could I, have mean, been, I guess he could have been meaner. Could have been worse. Could have taken over the whole damn flight. Or, tie, you know, tied people up or hit yeah. them. Sounds like he was pretty. I he guess if he wanted you, his money you and a, bomb. a parachute. <laughs> if you have a bomb in an attache case, you don't have to be violent. No, people respect you, just, you. You put on the sunglasses and you point at the case. Honestly. If he wasn't wearing the sunglasses, I think they would have been like, he was a dick. He, he was, was a so huge mean. dick. I wanted nothing to do with him. He made eyes at me the whole time. He could have been anything. He'd been doing anything. Maybe he was sleeping. <laughs> and they, he was just like, I'd like to take a nap before what is going to be a real crazy night for me. So <laughs> here like, go the sunnies. It's about to be a day. Tomorrow is Thanksgiving. I'm going to have another long day. Then it's <laughs> yeah. Black Friday. I got to get my shopping I gotta done. I got to go to the wife's parents. I got to go to my parents. Two Thanksgiving. There's so much turkey to be eaten. And then... I'd need all this money for all the deals on yeah. Friday. Yeah, he's, that's why he's doing this. He's just a Black Friday shopper. Right. He's like, I have got my eye on a new attache case. <laughs> this one is trash. It's alligator skinned. You have no idea. It's $200,000. Just one of the exact amounts. The for finest case. Attache case. Well, Cooper remained cool as a cucumber, even ordering another bourbon and soda. And, after paying, offered to let Florence Schaffner keep the change. That is a very <laughs> madman move of him. Hey, sweetheart. Keep the change. <laughs> hey, doll face. You think he change. looks down over the yeah, sunglasses? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He would note various things out the window, including a nearby Air Force Base, which he correctly identified as McCord Air Force Base near the Seattle-Tacoma, or SeaTac, airport. He also noted the times the plane was flying above other cities, including Tacoma. 
Some would later speculate if Cooper was a local resident, given his familiarity with the area. He just wanted to be a tour guide. He's, everyone shut up, I'm going to give you a tour. <laughs> it's, it's his, he's auditioning. On your left, you'll see. Some people think that made him, meant he might have been a local. Others say if he was a local and hijacked a plane in the area from which he was like that's ridiculous that's i'm not gonna go to dfw first like of all shitting where you're eating don't dm me i'm not gonna hijack any plane if i was though it wouldn't be out of dfw because the chances of me running into someone there are much higher yeah. it would be love field because that airport is uh leaps and bounds above dfw i love love field yeah love, love field is so convenient it's very easy to get in and out of i feel like the security is always very fast even with a really yeah. long line it's although small. i told did i tell you when i was going to um tennessee with my family and i got there i you know i usually get there an hour before boarding and it was i think they had added some sort of extra layer of security at love field so the lines were long and i had the distinct pleasure of being in the TSA line with families that were just ripped apart by we should have left earlier for the airport. Oh, yeah. It was like always and it's always one spouse was optimistic and the other spouse was like, no, there's no, there's, there's no, no way we're way making it. We're going to make that flight. Listen, listen, we can get on up to 10 minutes before. Yeah, the flight leaves in 25 minutes, Craig. Do you think we're going to get through this long line in 25 minutes? I told you we should have gotten up 30 minutes earlier. It was just Did like they lives. make it? No. Lives. They didn't make the flight? No, we were in that line for 30 more minutes. Lives were torn apart. Did you make your flight? Hell yeah, I get there an hour before boarding. Oh, these are people that hadn't got there. Yeah, gotcha. so I, they were on a different flight. They were just very upset getting stuck in security. It was, I hope... I have uh, never missed a flight. Can't what, come close. Come I just, close many times. Oh, see, I just told... That's what I said on this trip. I said, I have never missed a flight in my life, and I'm not starting now. I'm leaving extra early for the airport. I... But back in the day, you could get there as the plane was taking off pretty and much still get on. so and if it wasn't back then i would have missed the flight but even since rules have changed i have not missed i the always flight do, ever. just do an hour before boarding for domestic and then an hour and a half for international yeah. well the airline agreed to pay the ransom mostly concerned with the safety of the passengers and crew the fbi assisted in obtaining the ransom money making photocopies of all the bills and ensuring they began with the same letter l so that they would be traceable in the future. I can't believe he didn't ask for unmarked bills or like bearer bonds. You know, something that couldn't be. He was a planner. He wasn't a all the way thinking through planner. Yeah, like a though. genius. Because obviously yeah. if you ask for 20s, they're going to mark every single one of them yeah. with a serial number. That's why bearer bonds don't exist anymore. That's what they stole in Die Hard. Oh. They're basically a piece of paper that says whoever holds this piece of paper gets this much money and there's no trade. Did they exist in this 1971? Yeah, I think they, they outlawed him in the 90s, I think. Oh, well, then he should have asked for those. Or outlawed him, got rid of him, yeah. Cooper was clearly not interested in harming any of the passengers. In fact, for most of the flight, the other passengers were not even aware of a hijacking. The crew told the other passengers that there was a brief delay due to minor technical difficulties. Was that on 30 Rock? 30 more minutes going to be about another half an hour. <laughs> Dude, uh, I was once on a tarmac for upwards of two hours. Oof. And when you're on the tarmac, the air doesn't work. No. And you can't go to the bathroom. Torture. I was like, a riot is going to break out on this, Seriously. On this plane. It's, it's thankfully none of the flights we just were on got delayed, but it's... A meat market. I mean, it's just human bodies sweating. Yeah, planes are disgusting. Can, may I tell you this brief story? Coming back from Spain, we were in our seats. 
across. So it's the two, three, two configuration uh-huh. of the airplane. So we're in the two seats against the window. A guy to my left, he and his wife were from Germany. They spoke German and not, not really proficient in English. And they put, he, his only carry on bag was a knapsack that was roughly a little bit larger than a woman's purse, about a tote bag size. And he put it in the overhead because it was the only bag he had. So he didn't have to put anything under his feet. This guy, and I'm going to just say, what he was he was a new england patriots fan because he had a shirt on of new england patriots you're responding to these dms <laughs> i'm just saying i i can't change what shirt he was wearing that's what this is factual okay this is what he was wearing and he he goes is this your bag and the guy just looks at him because he doesn't know what he's saying and he's like is oh the this- german guy is not the pats fan no no the no. guy the, the german se- a separate guy correct, the, the german okay, guy gotcha. sitting in his seat he's opened a, a a tablet he's reading whatever he's having a nice time this guy walks down the aisle right. with a suitcase. A Pats fan. A rolly, a rolly suit, like a big rollerboard. And he said, is this your bag? And the guy just stares at him and he takes the bag out. And then the guy, oh, no, the German guy stands that. up and puts the bag in and he's just like he shaking He probably also has no idea what the guy's asking him. Correct. And he's shaking his head no. And the guy's like, you have to take this out. You have to. And of course, Paris and I were in the middle of a conversation. I was like, shush, shush, shush. I have to hear what happens. The flight attendant, who was such a nice lady, because I had a gluten-free meal, and she was just so kind and thoughtful the whole time. Shout out to the, uh, I think her name was Sharon on Delta Airlines. And she comes up the aisle, and this Patriots fan guy goes, again, this is not all Patriots fans, but this specific one. And he goes, um, I need your help, please. I, I really need your help. And she's like, oh my gosh, yes, what can I do? And he said... I told him he had to take his bag out and he won't take his bag out and I want to put my bag up there. Why does he think his bag can't be up there? That's what she said. He's only brought one item. She goes, sir, is this the only bag you brought? And the guy just shrugs and like looks at her and she goes, if you only bring one bag, the small one can go up there. (laughs) This guy goes, I told him he had to move his bag and he won't move it. Will you tell him he has to move his bag? And the flight attendant was just like, no. And (laughs) this guy was just so salty. So entitled. Well, and he just sounded like a little kid. He just, a bratty little child. He sounded like a little baby. And then she said, no, you can't put your bag there. And so he had to go to the back of the plane. She, she said, you figure it out or we'll check your bag. I don't know what to tell you. But just that. I I told him he had to move his bag and he uh, won't move his bag. And now well, he had to put. I kind of like when they don't win a Super Bowl. <laughs> just but, kidding. But please I will say. Please don't DM us. Please don't DM us because they always. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. Uh, let me Talk to up. us about our team. We haven't won in <laughs> let me, fucking years. So I'm going to look up the standings for the season and who they think is going to go to the Super Bowl. The Patriots. Oh, it's every year. It's who the do Patriots. they think is going to win? The, the Patriots. Patriots. Yeah. <laughs> they, they think all of it. That's, yes. That's the great joy of being like Lindsay Power is a great Pats fan. She's a comedian we do comedy with. She's a Pats fan. She's a huge Pats yeah. fan. She has a, she named her kid Patrick. And the other one's Brady. Yeah. And she has a Pats tattoo. She's amazing. She's dedicated. <laughs> you know what? I don't have a Cowboys tattoo, so I'm obviously. No, and I didn't name my child Romo or I'm any I'm going to name my kid Aikman. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know what? I'm surprised I've never heard of a kid named Aikman. That's true. I'm sure they're out there. Yeah. I w- you know, Aikman, Jimmy Johnson. That'd Jimmy be- or uh, what was the. Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin. No, the famed, the famous coach back in the day that always wore the suit and the hat. Landry. Landry. There's a lot of Landry's. Tom Landry. Yeah, there's Landry's. Yeah. Yeah. On Friday Night Lights, there's a Landry. Ooh, I wonder if that's why they named that character Landry. You like Friday Night Lights, right? I never watched it. Oh, it's good. It's very good. Well, skip season two. We don't talk about that season. Oh, no. (laughs) It's when the writer's strike was happening, and it is. (laughs) They're like, curb your enthusiasm. Wheels off. They just let them improvise. (laughs) It's wild. I mean, watch it just because you're like, what is happening complete like insane storylines get introduced that are never mentioned again for the rest of the show <laughs> season three they're like we don't talk about that it's yeah i mean they literally don't it's it's crazy well all 36 passengers were freed as soon as the flight landed 
at its intended destination in Seattle. As the plane was parked, Cooper had all the window shades in the aircraft lowered, fearing he may be the target of a police sniper. So he's thinking something's through. When the money was provided, Cooper was satisfied. But when he was presented with the military-grade parachutes the FBI initially provided, he rejected them. He wanted civilian-style parachutes, and so police had to ask for assistance from a local skydiving school in Issaquah to provide parachutes that were to Cooper's standards. According to CBS, the Issaquah Skydive Center had recently purchased the chutes from a man named Earl Cossey, a middle school algebra teacher who, with 4,000 jumps under his belt, was also a veteran parachutist. Despite Cooper initially refusing the chutes the airline provided, wanting them to come from a private party and not the military itself, the chutes Cossey had packed were also, in fact, military-issue NB-6 chutes. So all that freaking run around and he gets the same chutes that he had in the first place. It's so strange. Well, they do say that he turned... So they give him the chutes and he turns and he unzips it, a, a pocket where the Packers certification yes. would be. So they're like, he clearly knows... He had some. He had some knowledge of how to work a shoot. At least, yeah, the components of a shoot, or to check and see who packed it or whatever. But yeah, the question is just why the why does he care? Well, military from my limited research Uh, into a shoot. We get into it a little bit later. Military shoots are harder to maneuver. Mm -hmm. So if he knew that, he may have wanted a civilian type shoot because that's probably what he had only jumped with, unless he was in the military. Refueling the 727 did not go as smoothly as either Cooper or the FBI would have liked. Although the passengers had been freed, the crew remained on board, and Cooper still had his trusty bomb-filled attache case. As the refueling truck attempted to fuel up the aircraft, there was an issue with the truck's pump. Cooper and the crew had to wait on the plane, while another fuel truck was called over. Cooper was slightly suspicious, but remained calm nevertheless. That fuel trunk pumped the plane full of fuel. And Cooper even waited while a third truck was called over once the second truck was empty. So, yeah, it was could have been some kind of stall tactic by the FBI. But by all accounts, it literally the truck just didn't work. Can you imagine being the guy trying to fuel up? Like, I'm so sorry. Please don't blow this plane <laughs> up. Everyone's like, you have one job. Come on, Dale. He's like, I'm trying. I do wonder pump why no attempt was made to get this guy off the plane. Zero attempt was made. Apparently back then... Airlines in these situations could make the call if they wanted to negotiate with a terrorist, basically, instead of the FBI and the airline. They're like, yeah, we'll pay him. So they pay him. But like there are there's all these stall tactics going on. Yeah, he might have a bomb, but like no negotiations were tried to made to get him off the plane. Mm -mm. He they were like, nope, we're going to send the crew back up with this guy with a arguably a bomb mm-hmm. and that'll be it and even if he's happy with the money the bomb could accidentally go yeah. off and still it just kill seems like in today's age every effort would be made to get this guy off the plane before and that would be like the last ditch effort or the last solution is to like let him leave again mm-hmm. but i mean at least he was he wasn't trying to fly the plane himself and i guess in that case, he needed the crew. Like, why kill the crew that's trying to take you to Mexico or wherever you want to go? I would be worried once he got to his intended destination, he then he would kill them because otherwise they've all seen his face. That's true. They know too much. You know, I don't know. Yeah, that's a strange that, that they didn't say, 
oh, well, you know, the pilot is not feeling well. We have this other pilot who's really an FBI agent come on the plane and stab him with a ballpoint pen or something, you know, whatever cool. And the flight attendant, the guy who drives up the parachutes and the cash just drives up next to the plane. The flight attendant comes down the stairs, gets it all out of his car and takes it back up. If I was that flight attendant, I'd be like, I'm not getting back on this fucking plane. See y'all. Mm-hmm. Just take off, you running. know, or send her back in with something or or send in an FBI agent with her. I mm-hmm. don't know. It just seemed like these guys were on their own. And I, and at the so later on, there's a mention of the airlines insurance company. And by this was 1971 and the rash of skyjackings had begun in 1968. They probably had skyjacking insurance. So if something happened, they were covered. Yeah. What about the lives lost? There's that. <laughs> I don't think insurance covers. I mean, that. They, I mean, it covers it, but it doesn't bring them back. No, it doesn't make up for it. No. It will, there's a, <laughs> the you know, families of those people aren't going to care. Correct. There are actuarial books that say how much parts of you are worth. Oh, like if your thumb gets cut off, my ass is priceless. Girl. <laughs> They're like, you look up, it says asses, you know, $400,000. Christy's ass. Priceless. priceless. <laughs> But seriously, if you like, say there's a machining accident and you get your thumb cut off, it's worth $500,000, but a pinky is worth like 85 grand. Yeah, it's because your thumb is, you lose a thumb, that impacts you need everything. It. You got to have your thumb. That's we what separates us from the animals. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you're just demoted and you're no longer a human. You're just getting demoted down to a, a monkey. <laughs> yeah. Just this, um, uh, we just watched that episode where the lady gets her pinky toe cut off on Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. And you're like, it's just a pinky toe. He's My like, pinky toe. It's the cutest one. That character that was so obnoxious. Because she's the one that is the heckler. Yes. Yes. I. That's what I don't get about people that heckle is just the lack of self-awareness that nobody else is making noise but you. Do you think, do you as the heckler think, wow, everyone in this audience must be so shy and I'm the only brave soul who's talking through this? Or do you just not care? I think it's that one. The second one. Well, I think or drinking has a lot to do with it. Oh, yes. From my experience oh, seeing yes. hecklers in the crowd. Oh, yes. Um, I also think that they think... They're funnier than the people on stage. And they whatever never they have to say is going to be get a much bigger laugh than whatever is happening on stage. They never are. No, I've never once said, you know what, God, that heckler needs to be up here. I'm going to go take his seat and he can come up here and do the rest of this show. Luckily, well, improvisers don't get heckled as nearly as much as stand ups, but it has happened. True. And I, I saw a stand up one time go, here's the microphone. Go ahead. And the guy was like, no, I'm, I'm good. He's like, no, 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 you're funny. Here you go. Talking to the mic. And he's like, come on, man. And it was like, yeah, bitch. So it's not easy when you're the one in the right. spotlight. Yep. Finally, the plane was fueled and ready to embark upon the next leg of this dangerous journey. However, prior to takeoff, Cooper insisted on several conditions. He's got a lot of t- asks. First, he wanted the rear stairs and landing gear to remain extended after takeoff. The pilots warned Cooper that this would hinder the flight, but Cooper was insistent. He also ordered pilots to fly him to Mexico City, but due to the plane's smaller fuel tank, the pilots informed him that this would be impossible without another fueling stop. They all agreed that Reno, Nevada would be an acceptable place to stop for fuel. Finally, Cooper insisted that the plane remain below 10,000 feet and stay slow, slower than 100 knots, the slowest speed allowable without stalling the engine. He also insisted that the cabin remain unpressurized. All three of these are highly unusual for commercial aircraft. Most commercial flights fly about 30,000 feet 
have pressurized cabins as any altitude above about 10,000 results in a lack of oxygen and fly at speeds anywhere from 350 to 500 knots. Yeah, so he was asking for... Well, he knows he's about to jump out this bitch. Sounds like it. He's trying to do it the safest way possible. As low as possible, slow as possible, and no need for an oxygen mask or, uh, you know. Yeah. So he obviously knew he was going to jump. Oh, yes. He also asked for the parachute. Yeah, he knew he was going to jump. I don't know why they ever believed that they were going to go to Mexico. What did they think the parachutes were for? Maybe they didn't think they were going to Mexico. They were just... uh, Kind of playing along with this little game. Ultimately, the crew refused to take off with the staircase lowered, arguing that it was incredibly dangerous. Cooper was insistent, but because he needed the pilots to fly him to his escape, he relented, and the staircase was raised before takeoff. This now low-flying, slow-moving flight made its way toward Mexico by way of Reno. Cooper had let some crew members off, but flight attendant Tina Mucklow remained on board. After takeoff, Cooper told Tina to join the pilots in the cockpit, close the door, and stay in there. Prior to entering the cockpit, Tina saw Cooper tie something to his waist. It's a fanny pack. It's a fanny pack with his sunglasses in it. He wanted to make sure that... <laughs> I don't want him to fly off. Yeah. I mean, you can't... <laughs> you Whoa. Maybe that's where they were wraparound. That's right. So he could wear them in his... <laughs> Descent. He's like, I need four parachutes, $200,000, and one of those sunglass eye ho- the ones yeah. that go around the back of your the head. foam things yes. that, that connect around the back, like yes. you use when you're jet skiing. Correct. <laughs> then somewhere between Nevada and Washington, in an area widely accepted to be over aerial Washington, the pilots received an alert in the cockpit. Lights flashed and indicated that a door in the plane had been opened and the back staircase had been lowered. Cooper then jumped from the plane and into the freezing dark sky. That's horrifying. Him? Yes. Yeah. Imagine, place yourselves for a moment. In the back of a plane. In the back. You've just pried open this door, which since then, by the way, after this happened, they redesigned all of the 727s to where these doors could not be pried open in mid-flight. You lower these stairs. Winds at 200 miles per hour freezing it's also raining and you're like pitch dark well shit i've come this far i i mean you're in a rock in a hard place yeah that's you're true. like i either give myself up because you and cause, spend the rest of my life in jail because you know in reno is not a fuel truck that's waiting for you it's the fbi is waiting for you absolutely in reno. yeah or you say fuck, fuck it and just dive on out you know what i got chills thinking about that just saying fuck it and jumping yeah jeez into the dark. With, I think with that's, your sunglasses on. <laughs> that's where his planning had, he had planned up to that moment. Mm-hmm. Like most people, when they plan something really big like this, mm-hmm. plan to a certain, on a much like more heinous and tragic scale, like mass shooters. Mm-hmm. There's like a point to where they plan up to. And then it's like, well, I'm either going to kill myself or go to jail. Guess I'll kill myself. Yeah. Well, and, or maybe in the planning stages, something like an end so heinous, they don't even plan for that. And it's like, well, we'll just get as far as we get and yeah, see. Yeah. He may have thought he wasn't even going to get the money. You know, yeah. he may have thought this is such a large sum of money. There's no way they're going to pay. There's the- no way that the FBI isn't going to come on board when I get these parachutes. And then they're taking off for Reno. And he's like, shit, man, they didn't even try to shoot me. <laughs> he's like, fuck. I think I'm going to get away with now, this. 
I gotta jump out of this plane. Oh, yeah, he you was, think he was kind of hoping he, he didn't make it that far, so he wasn't confronted with having to do that. <laughs> he gets busted, and then he could tell people, you know what? I was gonna jump out of the yeah. plane, but I couldn't. Sure, the DB. FBI. Sure, you the were. FBI, First of all, it's Dan. First of all, it's Dickbag. <laughs> Please call me by my Christian name, <laughs> Dickbag Cooper. It's Mister Dickbag Cooper to you. Well, none of the crew on board saw him jump. And in fact, the 727 was not alone that night. Unbeknownst to Cooper, the FBI had scrambled military planes to follow the plane after takeoff. The nearby McCord Air Force Base that Cooper had pointed out earlier was home to some fighter planes, and two of the base's F-106 jets followed the plane after takeoff. So in my flying lessons... It's fairly easy to get jet scrambled on you. It turns out you just... So Dallas mm, is... If you fly over an area you're not supposed to? Yes. Dallas has Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie airspace. And the area over DFW Airport, you mm-hmm. can't fly there sure. in Love Field. And President George W. Bush's house, Makes you can't sense. fly over it. Yeah. And if you start going towards it, you'll basically get air traffic control radioing you and saying, what the hell are you doing? And if you don't respond, they'll just scramble jets and shoot you down. I wish that... I was in a no-fly zone. How do I get my house on that you list? Think, yeah, we we hear gotta South, be a president. Southwest jets flying over, dude. There's mo- mainly helicopters. I know. I always wonder. I mean, I'm guessing maybe it's like medical helicopters. Oh, these are people looking for criminals. <laughs> uh, we're in East Dallas, Heather. That's true. But I guess medical helicopters don't lie. They don't fly low and slow with the spotlight. With the spotlight, yeah. yeah. And they're like, we just want everyone to know we have a very important patient on board. No, they're get usually, out of our way. They're usually going somewhere pretty quickly. These yeah. are sort of hovering. Yeah, they're just uh, searching in someone's backyard. Oh god. Well, three additional planes scrambled by the FBI also trailed the seven two seven for a bit. However, none of the other pilots saw Cooper jump from the plane. Do you think they would have seen him? I wonder what it would look like to see the stairs lower. Well, they said that the at least so one of the three other scrambled planes ran out of fuel. So, the, so they had to turn back. They turned back. And then the F-106 jets, they didn't want Cooper to see them. So Mm. one flew so many hundred feet above and one flew so many hundred feet below. So the above guy is... So what were they going to help with just to kind of just be there to to make make them feel a little safer? Yeah, and make sure they were going the right place. And I guess really the reason why jets normally are scrambled, so say there's a... It's usually anytime there's an unresponsive pilot mm. so if you you know if they notice that a plane is flying off so you don't have to file a flight plan when you're flying you just can uh do like visual rules so you said i can see where i'm going i don't have to tell anybody where i'm going but if it's instrument conditions like it's too you know you can't see where you're going you have to tell them hey this is where i'm going yeah i plan to go this way but so if you start deviating from that and they radio you and you ignore them they'll scramble jets not to shoot you down but to kind of look and well, see. well they probably assume somebody's taken over or they say or if it's a small plane did this guy have a heart attack yeah. did he have a stroke did he pass out did he have a seizure yeah and in that case they'll follow them and say Hey, you know, if we see that he starts to go down, because a plane, when you get to a certain altitude and you're flying straight and level, if you've got the controls going straight and level, the plane will go until it runs out of fuel. Right. And then once it runs out of fuel, it'll just kind of gently, like, it doesn't just, planes don't just shoot out of the sky. 
they just kind of, just kind of glides on down. But the problem but it is could where? glide into somebody's house. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> so what they do is look at it and say, okay, well, if we shoot it down now, the trajectory yeah. is it'll hit this field yeah. or it'll hit or this water, water or something, something like yeah. that. Or if we let it go, it's going to hit this elementary school. Yeah. Well, we better shoot it down. So that's usually why they're, they're trailing them. So in this case, if they lost radio contact with the pilots or something like, and they, they think, oh, they could just shoot it. They down thought, oh gosh, yeah. you know, he went in there and choked the pilots to death or whatever. Then they, that was, well, if they're that far, away then maybe they wouldn't see that the i mean it's dark and have. rainy well they they say they didn't but Ooh. when we get to my theories maybe he landed on the fighter jet Ooh, like uh, iron man style the thing on the wing yes that, there's that, something that iron uh, man. twilight zone episode yes where he's on the wing of the William plane Shatner. The monster yeah oh, that's a good one well after safely landing the crew discovered cooper the parachutes his attache and the $200,000 in cash were gone. And his sunglasses. And the sunglasses. The aircraft was immediately dusted for fingerprints, but none that could be attributed to the mysterious passenger were found. The only thing that remained of D.B. Cooper was one item. Laid on a seat in the back of the plane, the man's clip-on necktie from J.C. Penney. He didn't want it whipping him in the face when he jumped out. I wonder what that was about. <laughs> Is it just kind of a F.U., like a signature calling you know card? Who's here? db <laughs> because why not just rip it off in the air yeah and throw it throw it also, or i think it was put like it in your attache case or there was bomb stuff in there christy it wouldn't fit or the bag they've given you all this cash in That's true. i feel like leaving anything that was on your person behind he didn't know is probably is is gonna be a problem for you at some point you're asking to get caught yeah well he i think it was a signature kind of thing and back then they didn't think oh they're gonna scrub this for dna or yeah. for particulates or epithelial these are all words i learned from csi i love the world word epithelial it's a good one sinisterhood will be right back The holidays are coming up, and there's no better way to manage the stresses that can bring than with a CBD routine from Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web is the world's most trusted hemp extract, and now you can use the code CREEPY for 15% off their entire selection of amazing products, excluding bulk products and bundles. You can choose from a selection of topical skincare products, gummies, and traditional oils, all made to support you day-to-day, moment-to-moment. I love the mint chocolate hemp oil. It is great to help calm everyday stresses, which... We said the holidays can bring lots of, it brings a lot of joy too. If you want to bring that instead of stress, drop a couple things in a person's stocking. Be a little CBD Santa this year. You can do all (laughs) your, your Christmas shopping right on their website. There's something for everyone, including pets. That's right. And I use, uh, I got with my own Santa because I got some CBD medic back and neck pain relief ointment. It gives me targeted temporary back and neck relief and helps soothe all of the stresses I keep in my shoulders uh, just from the world in general and life and existence and, and everything like that. And carrying that big bag of toys on your back. That's right. <laughs> the good thing about Charlotte's Web is its products are all free of eight major allergens, not tested on animals, gluten free. And their topical products are formulated without synthetic fragrances, artificial colors or dyes, sulfates, or GMOs. If you've been following the latest with my dogs, Kate and Betty, <laughs> and their progression with the Charlotte's Web um, CBD Chews for Senior Dogs, you know that they recently did a TED Talk. They have mm-hmm. since moved out of the house. They're they're living the life. Um, they I just heard they have been enlisted to help Santa this year. Oh, they're, have they? They've... They've taken Blitzen and Dancer's 
spots on the reins. And that's so <laughs> I'm glad that they're safe for dogs. They have stuff safe for dogs and pets because now all the reindeer and doggies can have something too on Christmas. That's right. It's a, a gift for everyone that keeps on giving. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a great gift for yourself, your friends, your family, or even your pets so that they can join Santa's crew as well, please try the world's most trusted hemp extract by going to charlottesweb.com and entering code CREEPY for 15% off. In the days following the skyjacking, the FBI launched what Encyclopedia Britannica calls one of the longest and most exhaustive investigations in the FBI's history. Did you have encyclopedias growing up? I did. Funk and Wagnall. We did not have them. My mom still has them at her house. Really? It is so fun. A through Z? Oh, yeah. It's so fun (laughs) to go over there and open it up and be like, the internet. Yeah. And just see what it... And when I was a kid, before we... Because we always had computers, but before we had the internet, I would look the encyclopedias for my homework. We didn't have them. Our neighbors across the street did. Did you have to borrow them? Yeah, so I would go over there and borrow them for, for reports and stuff. That's so cute. What <laughs> nice neighbors. You had such a nice neighborhood growing up I with your scavenger nice hunts and your shared encyclopedias. I was very, very lucky to live in the neighborhood we did. That's so nice. Well, and all my friends that I went to school with lived around, too. So Even we had a, better. We had a good, good neighborhood. Well, the FBI called the investigation NORJAC, short for Northwest Hijacking. Immediately after landing, the FBI scoured the plane for evidence, began interviewing witnesses, and assembled a list of possible suspects. Nearly 1,000 military troops searched the area where Cooper was thought to have jumped. Tests were even conducted with the same Boeing 727 in an attempt to recreate the jump to determine exactly when and where Cooper had made his escape. The aircraft was flown out over the ocean to the suspected jump zone. The plane stairs were lowered and weights simulating the same weight as Cooper were dropped from the cabin. That's Mm. smart. That's pretty. But you can't. I mean, if you that would then indicate that he didn't open the chute. Right. The parachute. Yeah, because all they did was dump a thing that weighed the same as him out of the cabin. I think they were trying to see like. Planes going along. This is how much it weighs. Oh, now it weighs something different. So this is where he jumped so they would know where to look. I guess, yeah. I was just thinking if it... So if you chuck a thing out of a plane and it doesn't have a chute on it, it's just going to fall straight down really fast versus with the parachute. He Also, the thing, other thing about this test is winds would have been different at the time. Yeah, it's not the most scientific, yeah. but it's also like... It's also fun to throw a thing out of a plane. <laughs> it's also Can you 1971. They're like, we're going to do an experiment. I'm going to huck that thing they out of a plane. They needed Mythbusters. They did. Yeah, if only. Despite the government's efforts and resources, no trace of D.B. Cooper could be found. It appeared he had vanished into thin air when he jumped in the pitch black night 10,000 feet above the ground. Gone like a ghost wearing sunglasses. Mm. Over the course of the five years following the hijacking, the FBI considered over 800 suspects and eliminated all but 24 as the possible perpetrators. One seemingly strong candidate was Richard Floyd McCoy. Mere five months after the Norjack incident, McCoy had been arrested for a similar skyjacking and escape via parachute. Did you read about Richard McCoy and how his wife drove him and thought... 
he's never going to do this. She drove him to the airport with him telling her, you know, that D.B. Cooper guy was an idiot. He should ask for 500000 and now I'm going to go do my own skyjacking. And she said, oh, Richard, you're so silly. He's and like, I, I, She's probably challenged him. I wish you would get yeah, 500000 Yeah, this was like a game of chicken. <laughs> All right, fine. And he, the whole time he's like, you think I won't? I'm going. I'm leaving. I'm doing it. Sure, I'm going right me, now. Sure, let okay, me drive you. Okay, do it. I'm doing it. I'm getting out of the car. I am doing it. Go buy your ticket, Richard. All right, I'm doing it. I'm getting on the plane. He I'm going to sure, do it. He definitely got caught. But <laughs> I mean, she, he, but he, he also did it very almost to the T. Exactly. As Cooper, he passed a note. He had on sunglasses. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to do it the he, way it should have been. He's done. at the sunglass hut the week before. <laughs> Are you going to a beach? You had a beach vacation. It's like, which ones did Dick Bag have? I need the oh, Dick Bag sunglasses. I'm sorry. Um, so you're not going to the beach? Well, I don't know. It depends on where I land. Sharon, <laughs> please stop questioning me. Okay, fine. The Ravians will get you the wraparounds. Well, however, the FBI was ultimately forced to release McCoy, as he did not match the consistent descriptions given by both flight attendants, who arguably spent the most time with Cooper and were able to describe him best. They're like, he was that cool emoji. Mm. So he did get arrested for the one he did, but yes. he was not. He They eliminated him as a potential Cooper Suspect. I think he was a copycat. He was just a simple copycat. Super copycat. Well, after watching the Unsolved Mysteries episode, where Robert Stack covered the infamous skyjacking, Lyle Christensen became convinced his brother Kenneth was D.B. Cooper. It's the strength of Stack. He can convince Dude, I watched you. this episode. This is so good. Fucking great. I love it. I was him. like, man, this show is so good. The music was so good. God, it gave me, it still gave me chills. So good. It was very good. We used to watch that. That was the pretty much that and Wonder Years were. Yes. And, and Rescue 911. Oh, okay. Unsolved Mysteries and Rescue 911 were in the same time block. That was my jam. That was what you watched. That's what I grew up. We I mean, always, I've always been into this stuff. Yeah. And that's when we were little, me and Shannon would watch, me and my sister would watch on Lifetime, like the reruns. Mm-hmm. And that was, my dad said, always oh, said that was like one of the only times we weren't fighting because we're six years apart. So we, you know. You got to pay attention to the stack. We, he said he was fighting during you know, Unsolved Mysteries. You walk by and it's like, the body was found in the lake. And we're and like, y'all are like, shh, shh, the body was found in where, yeah. where, where, We're going to solve this. We're going to solve this. That's how, you know. We, we got Robert to... Stack walks off this plane in this reenactment in a. Does he have a t- raincoat? Floor length velvet trench coat yes. on. Yes. <laughs> he looks so fly. I just love how it's he great. talks. I love him in basketball too when he they do a. I've never seen that movie. Oh my God. I love it so much. It's so bad. It's awful, but it's so good. And he's, they do a parody in it where, and he's, again, plays it so straight. He plays it exactly as if it was a real episode. Got that voice. Yeah. He says, she says, if you're looking for this man, you can see where there's the most, you can go check where there's the most heinous and blatant and vile exploitation of children on the planet. And then it cuts to Robert Stack and he's like, theory number two, he went to Disney World. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's the Zucker brothers, the people that made airplane, made basketball. Oh, nice. I thought it was the South Park guys. They're in it. But oh, they didn't write it? No, they said that they kind of helped write it. But at the time, they were writing and working on South Park, and then oh, they were shooting that. I thought they wrote it. Yeah. Well, according to Gizmodo.com, Kenneth possessed several characteristics that make him a prime Cooper candidate. He was a paratrooper in the military, meaning he would have been a skilled jumper. He worked as a mechanic for Northwest Airlines at the time of the hijacking, confirming some people's suspicions that this was an inside job. He also bought a new house, albeit a modest one, immediately after the hijacking and had a known affinity for bourbon. These are all signs pointing. I mean, his brother wouldn't be totally off base. Man, imagine you're watching something and you're like, 
that's I'm related to this person. I've never watched anything and thought, oh, I know the person that did this. I think I could tell you who this was. It's got to be such a odd revelation. The rush. Like, a part of you is like, it's cool as fuck. <laughs> My brother's D.B. Cooper. Also, where the hell is some of that money, bro? Yeah, exactly. You're like. Uh, I asked it, the other night we went to dinner and he made me pay. Yeah. Where's his Cooper cash? He said, come on, little bro, and made me pick up the check <laughs> after he ordered appetizers and dessert and the most expensive bourbon they had to offer. <laughs> Author Jeffrey Gray, who wrote Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper, also believes Christensen is the most likely suspect. Gray claims that when he showed a picture of Christensen to a flight attendant that had interacted with Cooper on the ground... She said it was the most accurate picture she had seen of all the suspects. Oh. Lyle also claimed that his brother tried to clear his conscience upon his deathbed, but was unable to fully confess, instead proclaiming, There's something you should know, but I can't tell you. Okay. Rude. <laughs> First of all, if you're going to do a deathbed confession, it's not called a deathbed Oh, oops, psych. Deathbed hint. (laughs) It's a deathbed confession. You're going to die. It doesn't matter. You're going to leave your loved one with this hanging over their head of, wait, what were they going to tell me? The ultimate troll. That's why I plan on my deathbed to say, my fortune is buried in the... And then die. (laughs) Wow. Well, despite some strong arguments that Christensen was their man, the FBI dismissed him as a suspect on the grounds that most eyewitnesses said that he did not, in fact, look like Cooper. In addition, the FBI has always been adamant that Cooper was not a skilled jumper. And because Christensen had been a military paratrooper, they felt this immediately ruled him out. I mean, eyewitness accounts suck. Yeah. Yep. And even Florence Schaffner in the Unsolved Mysteries episode, they interview her. I believe she has since passed. But back then she Mm -hmm. was still very much alive. She says that the sketch artist rendering, the famous one that if you Mm -hmm. Google D.B. Cooper, it's the first thing that pops up with Mm -hmm. his sunglasses on. He looks like Dale Gribble in the sketch. Yes. She said that's not what he looked like. Wow. So they had a another sketch artist sit with her and she retold him and so like you no know, make his uh, face a little bigger here the nose wider and they did a new sketch so the original one was not even what he really looked like and then like you said eyewitness accounts suck suck so you can't trust you can't i don't trust think them. i don't think ruling someone out on that and that alone and because you think oh well he wasn't a skilled jumper and this guy was to me that is not a two good reasons to rule somebody out Mm-mm. also just like the government would want you to think that they're not a skilled jumper if it was one of them. What? We'll get to the theory. Dwayne Weber had been a criminal and con artist for most of his life. On his deathbed in 1995, he confessed to his wife, Joe, to one of the biggest cons in history. As he lay there taking his last breaths, Joe claims he beckoned her closer, pulled her ear to his mouth and whispered, I have a secret to tell you. I'm Dan Cooper. Again. This woman is now left with this. What? Honey, what? 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 Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's like, oh, you're, you're, a bomb is dropped. No pun intended. You got all these questions. And where's the fucking money? And Dan? then you're like, 
Golly, I'm now I'm left to just deal with this by myself. Do I call the cops? Do I? But where's I the money, Dan? I want to know it. I guess deathbed confessions are all about clearing your own conscience before you pass on to, to whatever yeah. is on the other side. But maybe think about what you're leaving that person with, the you're, burden you're leaving this person with. You are uh, creating something for them that they're going to now have to deal with. Yes. That you get to just walk yeah, away Yeah, you are, you pieced out from. Feels nice. Just, yeah. Yeah. Well, according to BuzzFeed Unsolved, it wasn't long after this deathbed confession that Joe started to piece together things that up until then hadn't made sense. Joe said her husband would often talk in his sleep, mumbling worried thoughts about leaving fingerprints behind on a plane. She also claims he suffered from chronic knee problems and told her it was from an injury he endured while jumping out of a plane. Damn. It sounds like he was trying to give little hints here and there. The j- knee problem thing, that could have just, you know, be... He's cognizant when he's doing that. Yeah. Sleep talking, unless he's fake sleep talking which that is committing to the bit here (laughs) but those are things that you don't your subconscious is doing all the work there do you ever sleep talk i was just talking about sleepwalking and sleep talking with laura goff the Uh other night who played in local honey very she's she's, goddamn good jesus she's so funny she sleepwalks oh really yeah yeah (gasps) and and it has to, like if she's like super tired or something like that. It's crazy. Yeah, she doesn't do anything like super insane. Like you hear people like, like eating dog biscuits yes, or driving, or like yeah, or getting in your car or something like that. But I, she, and she also has sleep talked, and I think I think she said her husband does too. Anytime I've done it, I wake myself up in the middle of it. Oh, okay. it's like the sound of my mm-hmm. voice like wakes me up. But I have done it a few times. Yeah. I, I had a friend in high school whose brother would uh, sleep talk in Spanish. Oh, that's wild. Did he speak Spanish? <laughs> I not. I mean, he took Spanish, but it's not like he spoke it fluently in his everyday life. Oh, that's strange. It's deep within you. You can speak Spanish, yeah, buddy. Yeah, it turns yeah. out. Yeah. I've screamed myself awake. but I've done that several last, times. Last night I was falling asleep watching the Cowboy game and Paris was trying to talk to me. And apparently I was not pretending i mean i was trying to stay awake but i'm so tired i just and he's he was like why would you say bernie sanders and i was like i don't know i he had mentioned buffalo maybe the bills were playing or something maybe his buffalo wild wings commercial something he said something about buffalo and i was like that's where bernie sanders is from and he's like no he's not and that woke me up and i said what are you talking about he said you just said bernie sanders i said I was dreaming about Bernie Sanders because Larry David played him on Saturday Night Live. This oh, week. yeah. It made me think of him. But yeah, I just, I have this thing where if I'm dozing off, I'll keep talking. Like It's like a lucid dream. But I'm not, it's like nonsense. It's like half dream, half awake, yeah. but I'll still respond. You can talk to me and I'll respond, but it'll be like nonsense. Yeah. Kind of. I think I've done that before too. Yeah. yeah. My friends would all do it to me at sleepovers because they knew I would still oh. like stay, like they could mess with me. Did they ever uh, freeze your underwear? Put your hand in a pot of <laughs> no, but warm water? I thought I told. I think I might have told on the show. Or my friend sleepwalked when she was a kid, and we didn't know. And she invited us to a sleepover at her house, and did not tell us that she sleep sleepwalked. 
and we put the we did the shaving cream thing uh-huh. and she did it to herself stood up did a lap around the house walked into her parents bedroom and climbed in bed with them so we got shaving cream all over her parents and her mom woke up and was the nicest about it and said oh, i'm so sorry i should have told you she sleepwalked because we thought she was mad at us because she was walking around the house not talking uh. to us and we're like wake up or not wake up we're like hey oh my god we're so sorry we're so sorry and she just was like but her eyes were open but yeah, she was still it's asleep it's weird to see it happen yeah and then she walked and she walked downstairs and back upstairs which was amazing she did the stairs yeah and then she cr- climbed in bed with her parents and her mom comes out covered in shaving cream and said, <laughs> I'm not mad because I should have told you also this is kind of funny <laughs> she was she was like a uh, good bit <laughs> good joke good joke well, bizarrely, Dwayne's handwriting was reportedly found in the margins of a library book about D.B. Cooper. His wife also claims that he had an old Northwest Airlines ticket for no apparent reason and even took her to Tina Bar, the beach where some of the ransom money was eventually found. That's all weird stuff. It's all coming together. Regarding Weber, former FBI lead agent on the Cooper case, Ralph Himmelsbach, was quoted as saying, He does fit the physical description. He does have the criminal background that I've always felt was associated with the case. Despite this admission and finding Joe Weber's story credible, Himmelsbach does not believe Weber was D.B. Cooper. Years later, DNA from the left-behind clip-on tie would also rule out Weber as a suspect. He should have he no. taken it with him. Always keep the evidence. Yeah. According to BuzzFeed Unsolved, CitizenSleuths.com also believes the tie is the key to unlocking this mystery. Using an electron microscope to examine the tie Cooper left behind before jumping into the night, the sleuths discovered cerium, strontium sulfide, and titanium. That's weird stuff to have on your tie. I don't think it came from the JCPenney that way. <laughs> I don't think so and either. If it did, you should complain. These are what are referred to as rare earth elements. And in 1971, were especially rare. However, one place they would have been found at the time was the Boeing plant, where an advanced supersonic transport plane was being developed. So somebody was wearing their tie at work. Maybe. Tom Ray, head investigator at Citizen Sluice, believes D.B. Cooper was a Boeing employee and that someone that also worked there during this time could possibly have vital information that could help solve this case. Well, get on it. They're all elderly now. Yeah, that shit may have sailed. I think so. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe an intern. Somebody, somebody, <laughs> Somebody's kid. Bring your kid to in work their teens. Day. Yeah. A drug runner named Ron Carlson recalled to a friend the encounter he and his former partner in crime had back in February of 1980 with a man who claimed to be Cooper. While attending a large party in Portland, the two men encountered John Richard Dick Briggs, who claimed that he was the famous hijacker. Dick Briggs is going to brag. You know, that's I think that's uh, anybody named Dick Briggs. He's got he's going to bring his dick out. He's like Dick Briggs. Briggs Got a big dick. Lots of puns here. The men brushed him off as a braggart, but then Dick pointed out a couple on the beach, not far from the party, standing on the banks of the Columbia River. According to an interview with the Las Vegas Review-Journal, Ron recalls that Dick told him and his partner that the, quote, hippie-looking couple would soon stumble on some of the famous D.B. Cooper money. Just five days later, Carson saw a news broadcast that the hippie couple and their son had found some of the alleged Cooper money. Interesting. Very interesting. So he pointed out and said, that spot where they're standing, there will be money. And then they found it. 
That hippie couple was supposedly the Ingram family. On February 10, 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram, an Arkansas native, and his family were camping on Tina Bar near the banks of the Columbia River in Washington State, just nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington. In an interview with the Arkansas Times, Brian said his family was preparing to make a campfire, and Brian's dad had begun stacking wood. Brian was combing through some beach sand to make a flat place to build when he stumbled across what felt like old newspaper. As a kid, it's like your your fantasy. Right? Oh, yeah. You're digging in the sand and find a legitimate buried treasure. Treasure. The boy began digging and eventually uncovered several rubber banded bundles of $20 bills, totaling $5,800. Given the sum, the Ingrams contacted local police. When the police checked the serial numbers against the photocopied 20s given to Cooper nearly a decade earlier, they discovered this literal buried treasure was, without a doubt, from the Cooper ransom money. So it's that's why you give them serialized numbers. Yep. And this is the first clue or discovery that had been made since the tie? Really, yeah. it's really at all. There really was no discovery at all before took this. Nine years because yeah. they searched the woods. There was no shredded parachute. No, you know, no nothing. shoes left. Nothing. Behind. No fingerprints on the. Which I don't understand how there weren't fingerprints on the plane because there were no reports that he was wearing gloves or anything. I mean, unless he was just really cognizant and wiped of not, stuff down, or wiped stuff down, or just didn't touch anything. Yeah. Well, he had those drinks though. Ooh, that's true. He threw them out the back of the plane. <laughs> he took them with him. Left the tie throughout the glasses. Leave the tie. Take the cups. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for little Brian, he was unable to keep the found cash. The FBI took the money from him for nearly six years while the parties battled it out in court. Eventually, a judge determined that Brian could keep nearly 3,000 of the 5,800 he had found. While the FBI retained 14 examples for evidence, and the airline's insurance company kept the rest. They're trying to recover whatever they can. <laughs> They're like, we'll take I'm 2, surprised 000. they gave him any of it, to be honest. True. I mean, that's kind of nice that finders, they did that. Yeah, I guess it's finders keepers partially. In 2006, after keeping the bills in a safe deposit box for most of his life, the now 34-year-old Brian decided to sell them as a piece of history. After having the bills certified as authentic, Brian sold them at auction in 2008 for about $37,000. Pretty good return on investment. Well, that's kind of a nice little profit he made for himself. Mm -hmm. Although Brian found a large stash, about 9,700 other $20 bills remain missing. To this day, none of the bills have ever shown up in circulation. Oh, That's very interesting to me. Especially on the theory where they say, oh, I think my brother did it and he bought a house. How would you buy a house if you yeah. didn't spend the money? Or, I mean, any if he survived, mm -hmm. the money, if had, would have had, if he used it, would have had to have turned up, right? Is there any situation in which it wouldn't have? I wouldn't think so because... Paying then, someone under the table for something, perhaps? But then they would go and spend it somewhere. Yeah, that's true. So if even if, you know, you do a drug deal or whatever and give somebody $20... Eventually, that's going to go to a legitimate establishment yeah. at some point. You know, it's going to go to a 7-Eleven and then 7-Eleven deposits it in their bank account and then it gets scanned and then they know where that dollar's been. So that's what trips me up is that why, if he survived, how has the money never been spent? Unless Why go to all that trouble if you're never going to spend the money? Because what, 5800 was buried on the Tina Bar. Who's to say he didn't split it up and buried it in multiple different places thinking I'll come back later and then something happened to him in the well, meantime. That's true. Well, CitizenSleuths.com, an online group made up of scientists and amateur detectives, 
once again have provided several theories as to how this money wound up buried in the sand of Tina Bar. The beach is roughly 20 miles from Ariel, Washington, the town closest to the area where it is assumed Cooper made his daring jump. Some subscribe to the Washougal washdown theory and believe that the money was carried by several smaller rivers to the Columbia River before being washed on the shore of Tina Bar. Others believe that the FBI was incorrect in their assessment of the jump zone and that Cooper himself landed on Tina Bar that night and buried the money. Still, others believe someone else buried the money there on Cooper's behalf in an attempt to throw off the FBI. Interesting. Lots of theories. Arguably the strongest argument for how the cash found its way to the beach comes from Portland State University geologist Dr. Leonard Palmer. In 1974, three years after the hijacking occurred, the Columbia River was dredged, depositing sand from the bottom of the river all along the Tina Bar. In his findings, Dr. Palmer determined the Cooper money had been found in a layer of sand deposited by the dredging. This meant that the money had most likely been somewhere upstream for many years prior to being discovered on Tina Bar. That's so fascinating that you would study sand to the right? point that you know where the sand came from. And would you ever think you would help s- solve a mystery like a crime with your sand knowledge? It's like, you know what? This is why I got into geology <laughs> is to solve crimes. New one day. It's New one day. Off. Exactly. I think that's probably the most likely theory is... It fell out when he jumped out or he hit the water and it fell out or whatever. And it just eventually washed up onto this bar through rain or wind or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And the money was very deteriorated mm-hmm. and had holes in it. And it was, it you know, waterlogged, obviously. And we'll we'll put the link up. But there's a picture of Brian as an adult, the little boy that found the money when he's uh, grown up and the money spread out in front of him. And mm-hmm. you can see that it's. Some whole bills, some tiny little fragments, yeah. some looks like confetti. So it's in varying stages of rotting. And what was interesting, though, is the rubber bands were intact. Weird. So that's also let a lot of theories loose. But this brings the investigation back to Dick Briggs. After all, it was he who bragged Ron Carlson and his partner that Brian's family would find the money. While Briggs died in a car crash in 1980, his legendary admission lived on. Thirty years later, while drinking with friends, Carlson would recount the crazy story from that night on the beach. As luck would have it, one of Carlson's friends knew filmmaker Thomas Colbert and connected the two for an interview. Colbert was convinced by Ron's story that the bragging Briggs must have had something to do with the Cooper mystery. Soon his research and digging led him to Robert Rackstraw, an old acquaintance of Briggs. Originally born in Ohio, Robert Rackstraw was an Army veteran, dismissed in 1971 for falsifying his college records just months before the hijacking occurred. Rackstraw also lied about his rank and medals and was known for having 22 different aliases. That's so many aliases. That's too many. <laughs> that's too many That's aliases. more aliases than Sidney Bristow on the TV show Alias. That's, that's a lot of aliases. That's so many. How would you keep up with that? You'd have to have a Rolodex back in the You'd day. You'd have a secretary. 22 secretaries, most likely. <laughs> During his time in the Army, he gained valuable expertise as a paratrooper and was trained in explosives. He was also chastised for making unauthorized parachute jumps and participating in unauthorized missions for the CIA and the Green Berets. He's kind of living a James Bond lifestyle here. He's a bit of a loose cannon. Rackstraw was no stranger to bold moves, either. In 1978, he apparently died in a plane crash in Monterey Bay, California. But just a few months later, investigators found him alive 
as he was arrested for stealing an aircraft, passing bad checks, and had apparently faked his own death. That's bold. So you're doing a lot. You're stealing an aircraft and you're passing bad checks. Do pick a lane. (laughs) That's those are two such vastly different things to be arrested for. One is yes, so like quiet and insidious, and the other one's pretty bold. Yeah. Have you ever seen Airplane Repo, the TV show? No. It's these people that they repossess airplanes because that's a thing. Because I guess sometimes you try to buy an airplane and you cannot afford it. I think yeah, and that's when get. Airplane plane poor. Airplane repo comes in and they just, they'll go into an airstrip and say, that's the plane. And they look around, see if the guy's around and they jump in so the airplane. So it's just like a car, but a plane. Mm-hmm. And they jump in it and steal it. I mean, I guess they're stealing it for the rightful owner. They're taking it back, I they're suppose. They're taking it, taking back the plane, it, yeah. taking back the skies, airplane repo. <laughs> well, this stunt earned him a two-year prison sentence. Upon release, Rackstraw then called local news stations and willfully admitted to being Cooper. He later claimed this was simply a publicity stunt and denied any involvement in the Norjack incident. I myself have never been paroled for a crime, but I feel like an important step when you get out, you know, you want to see your family, maybe you'll get a hamburger. Don't call the news stations and (laughs) and confess to a federal crime. To something that you could just go right back to jail for. Don't do that. No, that's not what I would do. It's a bad move. If you want, you tell, tell, tell your kids you're really Santa. If you want, or tell, there's a lot of things you can confess to, but not a federal crime on the news. Yeah. Which would you rather know? That your dad was really Santa or that your dad was D.B. Cooper? <laughs> I would be so mad if he was D.B. Cooper because where's the money? <laughs> See, I'd be more hurt that he was Santa. Because you didn't know. After- well, I want to believe in magic. Oh, like the oh, well, I thought you meant like in the uh, Tim Allen, the Santa Claus esque, like where he genuinely actually is Santa. Oh, I was thinking he's they the ruse is up. Oh, it's like, like oh, uh, the there's no up. Santa. It's been me. When this were whole you? Time. How old were you when you found out there was no Santa? I distinctly remember this conversation. I want to say I was in third or fourth grade. Okay, but I remember going to my mother in our living room and mm-hmm. saying. Is Santa really real? And she said, do you really want to know? Which is already an answer. answer. (laughs) And I said, no. And then a few hours later, I came back downstairs. and I was like, yes. She was like, it's your dad and I. But the spirit of Santa is real. I also have two younger brothers. She was like, and you need to keep this up. (laughs) Yes. They still believe. But also for years, even after we all knew. She still did Santa presents yeah. and stuff and wanted the spirit of Santa is what we really want to embrace here. I like here. that. I believe my sister found out, you know, when she was like 10 or 11 and my mom said, you know, don't tell Heather. And then when I asked my mom, is Santa real? And my mom said, if you stop believing in Santa, he'll stop coming and you won't get presents anymore. And I said, you got to keep believing. 33, almost. <laughs> Santa's still real. Yeah. Well, when comparing the FBI sketch created at the time of the hijacking to Rackstraw's 1970 Army ID photo... Experts have found nine points of match between the two faces. However, when presented with the photo of Rackstraw, the flight attendants denied he was the man on the plane. Which are we going to believe? Science or an eyewitness account? In February of 1979, the FBI officially said Rackstraw was no longer a suspect in the D.B. Cooper case. However, that didn't stop Colbert from pursuing the lead. On July 12, 2016... 
the FBI released a statement that read, Following one of the longest and most exhaustive investigations in our history, on July 8, 2016, the FBI redirected resources allocated to the D.B. Cooper case in order to focus on other investigative priorities. Although the FBI appreciated the immense number of tips provided by members of the public, none to date have resulted in the definitive identification of the hijacker. In an interview with the Las Vegas Review-Journal, FBI agent Frank Montoya Jr. indicated that while the FBI wouldn't be pursuing any further tips, they would consider something if there was evidence involved. If something did come up that was worthy of additional pursuit, we would consider it. The bottom line would be the money or the parachute. Well, I think those that or a body are the only things you can find at this point. Well, and they found shredded parachutes throughout the years, and the fellow, Mr. Crossy, who... Packed the yeah, parachute. Yeah, he was a salty old man. He was hilarious. He said, people would come up to my house and ask me, and every time I'd look at it, go, no. And then he said on April Fool's Day one time, they happened to ask him if that was a parachute. And he said, oh, yeah, wow, you've really found it. That's amazing. <laughs> like, what a, yeah. such a troll. He's <laughs> tired of people asking him questions. <laughs> in September of 2016, filmmaker Thomas Colbert filed a federal lawsuit against the FBI, alleging that the Bureau closed the case in an effort to hide the fact that it failed to fully investigate Robert Rackstraw and wanted to save itself from embarrassment. In addition, he made a Freedom of Information Act request regarding some evidence the FBI had been withholding. After the hijacking, the FBI received six taunting letters from a man claiming to be D.B. Cooper. The first four had been released to the public. However, the fifth and sixth had been kept under government lockdown. Colbert argued that the public had a right to see these last two letters. The judge agreed, and the letters were released to the public. Upon obtaining these new pieces of potentially crucial evidence, Colbert immediately took them to Sergeant Rick Sherwood, a member of the 40-person private investigation team Colbert had assembled to prove, once and for all, Rick Straw was, in fact, D.B. Cooper. He is just tenacious. He's passionate. He can't. I mean, he's decided that it's Rick Straw. Do you think that that becomes a problem and clouds your investigative judgment if you're so fixated on a certain target? Like maybe you'll see things differently. You see everything through that lens. Mm -hmm. If you've already got it made up in your mind and you're trying to you already have the answer and you're trying to fit all the puzzle pieces to get you to that answer. Yeah, I think that could be a problem. You should be looking at all the evidence and having that lead you to the answer instead of vice versa. That's what Sherlock Holmes always said. Well, we have many things in common, myself <laughs> and Sherlock Holmes. Sherwood had served in the military with Rackstraw, both men being members of the Army Security Agency. Sherwood's specialty was code-breaking, and during his three tours in the Vietnam War, he was awarded two bronze stars for his impressive work. Man, code-breaking is so interesting to me. Yeah, the he, interviews with this guy and how he does it is very interesting. And deciphering things like that, it's amazing. Having served with Rackstraw, even deciphering some of his messages during the war, Sherwood is familiar with his fellow veterans' writing style. According to Rolling Stone, when Sherwood reviewed the Cooper letters, he immediately noticed the odd letter and number combinations and that they looked exactly like something Rackstraw would have sent. So he's doubly helpful because he personally knew Rackstraw and he's a codebreaker. And he personally had already decoded Rackstraw's messages. Yes. Using a code where each letter in the alphabet is assigned a numerical value, 
Sherwood believes he has uncovered several damning clues in the letters, including the following sentence. And please tell the lackey cops D.B. Cooper is not my real name. Which Sherwood decoded to, I am First Lieutenant Robert Rackstraw. D.B. Cooper is not my real name. We'll post in the show notes the CBS interview with him that shows how he did all of this. It's wild, the decoding that goes on. And several other things that were broken down, too, from the letters. But that's if if that is correct. And this guy seems to know what he's doing. He's Uh been awarded medals from the military for his work. That's pretty like just there's not a lot you can argue with. The the decoded message is an admission of identity. In an interview with the Seattle Post Intelligencer, as reported by Rolling Stone, Colbert was quoted as saying, Rackstraw is a narcissistic sociopath who never thought he would be caught. He was trying to prove that he was smarter than anyone else, but he couldn't fight 1,500 years of brain power on our team. We beat him. I didn't expect it, but it's the icing. In 2016, Colbert penned his nonfiction novel, The Last Outlaw, which details the extensive five-year investigation of his team and the evidence compiled against Rickstraw. That same year, the History Channel documentary, D.B. Cooper, Case Closed, which is based on Colbert's findings, also aired. It's a dangerous game, legally speaking, to pick a person and say they are a world-class criminal and here's all the criminal things they did. Well, it's why... Ramsey yes. sued the uh, the documentary that uh, they all said, no, he did it. Burke did it. That's right. Burke and killed his sister. That's why he sued CBS for $16 yeah. million. Dollars. Yeah. yeah. On Tuesday, July 9th, 2019, Robert Rackstraw passed away from a longstanding heart condition at his home in San Diego, California. He had threatened to sue the makers of the History Channel documentary and maintained that he was not, nor had he ever been, D.B. Cooper. FBI agent Curtis Ng denied that Rackstraw was the famous hijacker. Although the History Channel documentary presentation was thorough and it was detailed, it didn't prove that this suspect was Dan Cooper. I can't go by a nice presentation. I have to go by evidence. And in this case, there isn't ample evidence. Before his death, Rackstraw told the Washington Post, It's been asked for 45 years. I was never charged. I was made a victim and a suspect, and holy hell was raised throughout my life. Okay. However, in the documentary, The Last Outlaw, which... Or the D.B. Cooper case closed? Yes, which was based on The Last Outlaw. A reporter confronts him walking, just like walking in a parking lot, and is like, the world would want to know if you're D.B. Cooper. And he's real jokey about it. And it's like... Yeah, and the FBI and a lot of other people. Guess we'll never know. So he also at times would kind of play into the mystery. Like of he it. enjoyed the attention, maybe. Yeah, or I think it. I think he may have been him. Really? That's my theory. Yeah. All right. The identity of the unassuming man, clad in a dark suit and clip-on tie, who purchased a twenty-dollar one-way ticket under the name Dan Cooper and proceeded to successfully hijack a plane with $200,000 in cash and disappear into the dark of night, remains a mystery. To this day, it is the only unsolved American skyjacking case in history. That's, I mean, I think that's why it's such a, it's just... People are obsessed with it. Tickles in the back of everyone's mind. How? that one case that they're like, how could this happen? How how have we not solved this? Exactly. With all the technology we have and all the, you know, pieces of evidence... How did it? Yeah. How was it not solved that night? Years ago. Yeah. Some believe that Cooper never could have survived the jump from the aircraft, including Special Agent Larry Carr, 
who, like many, believe Cooper was not an experienced parachutist. The internet is filled with debates on this subject, with many points of interest being listed on citizensluce.com. According to the sluice, Cooper requested front and back parachutes and chose a non-steerable military chute. Unbeknownst to him, the reserve chute he took was a training chute, therefore sewn shut and completely useless. All of these seem like novice moves. However, a military chute would hold up better in the 200-mile-per-hour winds Cooper would have been met with upon exiting the plane. If he was, in fact, an experienced jumper, he would have known this type of chute would be best for the job. He also reportedly put on the chute without instruction, leading some to believe it wasn't his first time donning one. Yeah, if you handed me a parachute, I don't, I have no Oh, idea. no, I just throw it out the plane. Yeah, I don't <laughs> be like, why do I just jump after this and hold on? Do I sit on it this like a This is like cushion? a life jacket, right? <laughs> life preserver. Still, the fighter jets and other aircraft tailing the hijacked plane never saw a parachute open, which may indicate that there was some type of malfunction in the chute. Cooper also jumped over a heavily wooded area during a rainstorm and was dressed in a simple suit, not appropriate attire for sub-zero air temperatures or the rugged terrain below. Jump like this would have been incredibly difficult for even the most experienced skydiver. Yeah, he doesn't have on hiking boots. He had on alligator shoes. Yeah, I don't know what he was thinking. Unless, because he sent Tina, the flight attendant, into the cockpit and locked the door and nobody saw him again. He Maybe he changed clothes. Maybe. And then someone else also said, we don't know what he had on underneath it. True. He could have been wearing long johns or something like that. But he didn't have anything with him that would have been carrying clothes. Like I mean, a he, suitcase. Yeah, he just had the one attache. He, it was open and everyone saw what was inside. So no. I don't know what his plan was. Again, I part of me thinks he didn't think he was going to make it that far. Off the plane, yeah. But even if you, if you're planning on like, there's a chance I could. You Might gotta well. prepare. Go, take it all the way. Wear a wear a suit or, so, I mean, at least appropriate footwear. Yeah. If he, if he made it to the ground, he's gonna have to hike in a bunch of wooded areas. I don't know. Seems like there, there was a little some details that fell between the cracks. <laughs> Did DB Cooper perish that night, falling victim to the elements and his lack of parachuting skills? Was he one of the initial FBI suspects who was eventually cleared, getting away scot-free? Or is he still out there, sipping a bourbon and soda, a faint smile on his lips, placed there by the secret only he knows? Whips on sunglasses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah! You won't be mean again! (laughs) Oh, so what do we think? Well, signs really point to this Rackstraw fellow. I think it could be Rackstraw. I think... I don't think he died. I don't think the hijacker, regardless of his true identity, died upon the jump. I think he survived the jump. Where do you think he landed? I think he landed in a a wooded area and then walked somewhere. And, you know, you're a reasonably well-kept white man with an attache case and a suit. You probably could go anywhere. Yeah, but you got to look kind of ragged. After jumping out of a plane and landing in a forest. I imagine he doesn't look as well kept as he did when he got on that plane. Or he had a friend help him. That's one theory people have. However, I don't think he could have because the pilot is the one that dictated the flight plan. and So he wouldn't know where they were going. And Cooper just said, 
fly me to Mexico City and then just randomly jumped out at a place. So he mm-hmm. wouldn't have had a, a meetup point to tell anybody to meet him. True. At. And he wasn't in the cockpit because so he couldn't see the map. Oh, we're over. I'm over southern Washington. He yeah. may have said, oh, we're over Nevada. I'm going to jump into the desert and jump too soon or something. So I don't think he had someone helping him. My question is, why why hasn't the money been spent? That's yeah, because why go through all this trouble to hijack a plane and get that much money for the time? I mean, it's still a lot of money for now, but get that much money in spendable bills like twenties. Unless he thought, oh, I'm going to get these twenty dollar bills. They're not going to be as trackable as hundred dollar bills. Not going to be as obvious. And then he escapes. Goes to a hotel room and the news says the FBI has photocopied and has serial mm. numbers of all the 20s. And he thinks, well, shit, I might as well plant it in the beach and let some kid find it. I don't think he planted it there. I think it fell out it when washed. he jumped and it just washed up on the shore. But yeah. I, I bet he thought, oh, well, shit, I'm going to get caught. Like, so he just or never think, spent the money. Think, it was all for naught. I was going to say, or maybe he thought, OK, let me sit on the money for like. 20 years and then i'll spend it or i'll sit on the money for 15 years well nine years later they find this money on the beach it comes out in the news we track the serial numbers and then he thinks well shit now i can't spend it it's in a shed somewhere in robert rack somebody's gonna find this one day someday some it's gonna be a kid to a kid to a kid some like great 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 grandkid is gonna gonna find this attic a a trunk a cedar chest under a floorboard in a house in the banana stand yep there's always money in the banana stand. So they'll find it. I think it could have been Rackstraw for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I feel like there's a lot of good arguments for him. So. Especially given, you know, Sherwood, Sergeant Sherwood's decoding yeah. of those letters. Yeah, I think that's pretty strong evidence. And unfortunately, if it was him, now we definitely will never know. Yeah, you know what? Unless he left some admission somewhere in a diary or something. Well, that, like you said, when they said, oh, people want to know if you're D.B. Cooper. And he thought and he said, oh, yeah, the FBI would, too. He thought, I'm going to really outsmart him and I'm not going to tell anybody. The one thing, though, since they do have DNA from the tie, I didn't see if they had compared it to his and if it had been... If that cleared him as a suspect or not, but that maybe not yet. But a lot of the DNA that came back from it too, it all just kept coming back inconclusive. Uh, it may not be enough, which is kind of inconclusive in itself. I mean, you're sweating on a clip-on tie. Well, let us know what you guys think, or if you are DB Cooper, please DM us. And you are listening to this podcast, please DM us. We have a couple questions. Anytime, we'd love to have you on the show. We'd appreciate it. Sinister will always remain free, but if you wish to donate to our Patreon to help offset the cost of making and hosting the show, you can visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Patreon in the top right corner. You'll get some sweet perks like Patreon-exclusive content, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group, a special shout-out on the show, and a monthly bonus mini-sode. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. And if you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag of your own, like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on shop in the top right corner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. 
It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where is your stuff at? I am on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather, what about you? I'm on Instagram at Heather VS The World and on Twitter at MCK VS The World. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Mm, keep it creepy. Sinisterhood.